He came with a mission. He came with a very uh, set purpose. And, and we actually uh, find out what that purpose is from day one. The, the very, when, he, when he's born in Bethlehem, the angel goes out to, to the shepherds out in the fields right outside of the outskirts and they, they proclaim the message that Jesus has been born in that nearby town. And then as if the angels were just so excited and so overwhelmed at what they see God doing, right? This God whom they had been worshiping for who knows how long, crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? In the very throne room of heaven, they see this God take on flesh, become born as a baby, vulnerable as a baby, They're so overwhelmed by the gospel, by the good news that God has come, that that the whole sky just lights up, and there's angels all in the sky, and they're singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace. Peace among men. Peace on earth. That's the mission of Jesus Christ. He's come to bring peace on earth, and not just peace between nations, not just peace between me and you, not even just peace right here in my heart, but peace between God and sinners. Peace between God and men, women, and children. And throughout his ministry, he keeps telling us how it's going to come. He keeps telling us what it's going to cost to buy peace. He says, we can only have peace if he takes the violence. We can only have peace if he takes the justice for our sins. We can only have life if he takes the death that we deserve. We can only have freedom if he takes you know, if he, if he is the one that's captured, if he's the one that's crucified, if he's the one that absorbs the infinite wrath of God that is due our sin. Isaiah 53 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. He takes the punishment so we can have the peace. And so for the last three years, the public ministry that we've been looking at uh, of Jesus, um, we, we see that it's just been one long sh- but, but straight road to the cross. It's just been one long straight road to the cross. And so friends, listen, today is the day. I've been so excited all week long. I've been so excited about, about coming up here and, and being able to celebrate this good news together as a church. Today is the day. This is the, the apex of of our study. This is the pinnacle of our study together. We've been in it for about a year and a half now. Um, I'm not saying this is going to be the best sermon of our study, all right? <laughs> this is the, but this is, the, this is the pinnacle of the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad you're here today to celebrate this with us. I'm so glad our whole family is here to celebrate this. We're going to have to walk through some, some murky things, and it's, but this is, this is the message that every person needs to hear, young and old. Some of this stuff might be, by the way, a little bit in-depth for the kids. I want to encourage you parents, you uncles, you aunts, uh, you friends, help unpack this this week with your kids. Help them to, to kind of, you know your kids better than any of us, right? Help them to, to process this in the way that they can, okay? We're going to talk about some really kind of heavy things here today, but again, the most important message uh, in, in the history of the world. Um, I, was, I went up and I saw the kids up at the youth retreat uh, yesterday. They're having a great time um, uh, up at uh, Koinonia Campgrounds. And so if you've got kids up there, um, they're having a fantastic time. Everybody's safe, at least when I left at like 7 o'clock last night, 8 o'clock last night. So everybody's good s- until then. Um, <laughs> but I was talking to one of the, one of the leaders about, this, about the message today, and we were just talking about how sometimes, um, sometimes when, you, when you're searching through the scriptures and you're going to present something, it, it's a bit laborious. Sometimes it's a little bit more of a drudgery because you've got to really dig and you've got to unpack this stuff to really try to get to the goal to see what God is communicating. Not John 19. I, I, there's been no drudgery this week. I feel like I've been swimming. That's what it feels like. I've just been swimming in, in the, the glorious and the beautiful truths of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to swim through the, the, the best news in all of the world. So let's dive in. Instead of reading it all up front, um, I, I'm just going to go 
uh, bit by bit, just a little section by section. We're just going to soak in what, what Christ does for us on the cross. John 19, let's start in verse 16, the, the last half of the verse here. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So Jesus ends his life the way that he lived his life, in the company of sinners. He's hung between two sinners, two thieves. I've heard it said, though, and if you think about it, there's, there's not just two thieves there. There's actually three thieves on Golgotha. Uh, Jesus was every bit as much of a thief as the two on either side of him. The other two thieves stole money and stole possessions, but Jesus was a different kind of thief. Jesus robbed the woman at the well of her shame and her guilt. Jesus robbed countless men, women, and children of their diseases and of their demons. And at the cross, Jesus is going to commit the greatest heist of all time, the great cosmic heist. He's going to rob death of its sting. We just sang about it. He, 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 is going, he is going to rob Satan once and for all. He's going to rob sin of its power once and for all to condemn. You guys remember that parable that Jesus, um, that Jesus said one time? It's, a, it's such an interesting parable uh, where Jesus says, if you want to go in and, and, and plunder a strong guy's house, you first have to go in and disarm the strong man. You've got to take his weapons away, and then you've got to bind him up, and then, you can, then you're free to go and take whatever you want from his house. What an interesting parable, Jesus. Right? He's the thief in that parable. Jesus, Jesus makes himself out to be the thief. This is what he's doing on the cross. He's disarming Satan, and he's binding him up. And now he's free to go take in what belongs to him. On the cross, Jesus takes every weapon of Satan away. Satan has no more power to condemn us ever again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The greatest, most important decision that every human being will ever make is this. Will you give Jesus the license to steal? Will you give Jesus the license to steal? Because he's come to rob you of your shame. He's come to rob you of your guilt. He's come to to take away your fear and your anxiety and your insecurity and your self-centeredness and your self-sufficiency. Jesus has come to take away the justice for your sins and put it on himself and in its place, give us peace. Will you give Jesus the license to steal? Let's see how he does, how he makes this possible. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather that this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And we'll stop there for one minute. I want to point out a couple things. First thing we should note is the seamless tunic that Jesus was wearing. This was not normal Jewish apparel, right? This is not normal Jewish garb. Normal tunics, a tunic is what you wear it's from, your, from your neck to your feet, okay? It hangs down, and it's made in two pieces, typically, and it clasps right here on the shoulder. Not Jesus's, though. 
His is different. And what's so incredible about Jesus' tunic is it's the tunic that a priest would wear. More specifically, it's the, it's the garment that a high priest would wear when he would, he would go and, and sacrifice the lamb at Passover. Isn't that interesting? Why would he be wearing that? Well, because Jesus is our high priest. In fact, in Ezekiel 44, it says that a, a priest isn't fit to serve unless he's wearing that, that, that tunic. Jesus is wearing that tunic. He is our high priest. He lives to intercede for us. He is our intercessor, but between, between us and God. Hebrews 7 says this about Jesus. He says, Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy and blameless, pure, set apart for sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's his tunic. But what about the rest of the prophecy? John tells us that, that Jesus' garments were divided among the soldiers and that uh, they, they cast lots for his clothes, for his tunic. And he said that that was to fulfill Scripture. And the Scripture that he's talking about is Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22. And this was a psalm, that, that was a psalm written by King David hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. And so I want to encourage you actually sometime, it's a fascinating passage. I would encourage you to just write that down, Psalm 22. Read that sometime in its entirety this week if you get a chance. Um, Psalm 22 is, is, is interesting because David typically wrote his psalms in, in kind of an autobiographical kind of nature. And so he wrote it about what was happening around him. He wrote it you know, in his response to you know, just, just the, the movements of the spirit within him or his situations when he was on the run. He, he wrote much of the, the, the psalms in response to what was happening around him. But Psalm 22 is different. Because Psalm 22 is, is the detail of, of a public execution, a detailed account of a public execution. When was David ever publicly executed? And the answer, he, he wasn't publicly executed. He, he was a king and he died of old age. We have written record of that. And so this must have been kind of a mystery to those, you know, before Christ who were reading the, the, the ancient Hebrew scriptures. Because David was never executed. But these are the things that he says in Psalm 22. He says, I am scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their heads saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. He says that he's laying in the dust of death. This is a detailed account of a public execution. When did that ever happen to David? It didn't. Piercing the hands, piercing the... Well, we know that David had, you know, some difficult seasons in his life, right? He was on the run. He was being oppressed. But when were his hands ever pierced? When were his feet ever pierced? When did he ever divide his garments? That's what executioners do. That's their spoils. When was he ever lying in the dust of death? Dying of dehydration, if you, if you keep reading Psalm 22. And what's more, if you read the end of Psalm 22, he says that as a result of that public execution, the nations would turn back to God. When the ends of the earth hear of this execution, they would return to the Lord. When did that ever happen? What, what Peter tells us just a couple weeks after the cross of Jesus, it's a few weeks later, in Acts 2, in his very first sermon, Peter steps out and he says, being a prophet, David, David being a prophet, foresaw and he spoke of the Christ. That's the answer. David, being a prophet, foresaw and he spoke of the Christ. In other words, David, somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to see that there would be a greater David that would come and experience a greater suffering, uh, you know, bring a greater deliverance against a greater Saul and against a greater Goliath and, and to usher in a greater kingdom, a kingdom that would never end, that all the nations would come and turn to. 
So imagine the shock that the Jews who put Jesus on the cross, imagine the shock that the Jews must have been experiencing when Jesus takes that psalm and applies it to himself. You know what the very first line is in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, this is what Jesus cries out on the cross. He's not just crying out in despair. And of course, yeah, he's in despair. He's being forsaken by God, separated from God for our sins. But he's doing more than that. He's quoting scripture. He's saying Psalm 22 is about me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in his darkest hour shows us again, once again, I am no victim. Nobody's taking my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down of my own accord. This is not murder. Nobody's murdering me. This is sacrifice. That the nations would turn to God, that the the ends of the earth would return to their king and their creator. This is my mission to fulfill the scriptures, to be the Messiah, to be the king, to bring the nations back. This is the reason I've come. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He was stripped so that we could be clothed in his garments, in his garments of righteousness. And, and that's what I think verse 24 is all about. It's more than just an answered prophecy. Again, it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There's more being stated here than, than, than uh, I think meets the eye. Back in G- Genesis chapter 3, 2 and 3, we read about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we read that they were naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. And I think Moses is saying more than just the fact that they weren't wearing any clothes. I think Moses is telling us that they were innocent. You know, they had, they had nothing to hide. They had nothing to be ashamed of, no guilt. They had a perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. So they had no need to try and hide anything. They could be completely exposed. They could be completely known for who they were without any fear of being rejected or condemned. But then sin entered into the world and their relationship with God was fractured and their relationship with one another was fractured and they turned inward and they started living for themselves. You know, they, they, they rejected God. They, they betrayed one another. And it brought tremendous shame and it brought tremendous guilt and brokenness and insecurity. And and Moses tells us that that after they sinned, remember what they did? They ran and hid. And they got these fig leaves and they tried covering themselves up with, with fig leaves. Because now shame had come into their life. Brokenness had come into their life. And now they had something to hide. And friends, this didn't end at the garden, right? This is still the case today. Because of sin, we've got shame and guilt and brokenness and insecurity in our lives. And what do we do? We try to cover it up. We try to put on fig leaves. We we all have stuff that we try to hide from others because we're afraid of being condemned, afraid of being rejected. And so we cover up our brokenness with fig leaves. You know why some of us have a hard time sleeping at night when our jobs aren't going as well as we think they are? Because these are our fig leaves. These are the things that we're trying to, to prop up as our identity to hide our brokenness. You know the, the reason why some of us are so obsessively concerned with our weight and, and, and our beauty and the way we look? Because these are our fig leaves. These are the, basically the masks that we, that we put on to hide our brokenness, to hide our shame, to hide our insecurities. You know why, why um, some of us are so ab- absolutely, utterly dependent upon our love relationships? We just absolutely have to be loved. We have to have that girlfriend. We have to have that boyfriend. You absolutely have to have somebody that loves you because that's how you hide your brokenness. That's, that's how you're fractured. That's your identity. Why we live vicariously through our children. And, and, and we, are, we are utterly terrified of these things being stripped away from us. The fig leaves being removed. Because why? Because then we'd be naked. We'd be exposed. 
We'd be completely, uh, completely known, and we're terrified of that because then we'd be rejected. Then we'd be condemned, we think. Wouldn't it be incredible if we could get back, if we could recover just a bit of that original unashamedness? Wouldn't it be incredible to get back that unashamedness that we had in the garden? Do you remember what God, what God did when, when he sees Adam and Eve with the fig leaves? He takes the fig leaves away and he clothes them. Do you remember that? He takes the fig leaves away and he clothes them. You know what Jesus does on the cross? He takes our fig leaves away and he divides his garments among us. He divides his garments. He clothes us in his righteousness. Jesus was stripped so that we could be clothed in garments of righteousness. He divides his garments among us. Isaiah 61 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with what? Garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Ezekiel 16 says, the Lord says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I dressed you in fine linen and I covered you with costly garments. He's our identity now. Not these petty, fickle, temporary fig leaves. Not these little masks that we put on. He is our identity. He is our righteousness. He is our beauty. He is our value. He is our acceptance. And to the degree that you and I can get that and we can live in that each and every day, we will begin to experience and enjoy this, this solid, unassailable identity in Jesus Christ. It's when we forget it, when fear and anxiety and shame and insecurity spring up. But if you and I can get this, that our identity is found in Jesus Christ... We don't need to hide anymore or be ashamed anymore. We won't, we won't be nearly as upset when we put on those five pounds. You're right? We won't be nearly as upset when we're not as successful in our jobs as we hoped we would be. We won't be, we won't be nearly as upset when, um, you know, or, or crippled even when people criticize us because our identity is found in Jesus Christ. In other words, we'll be free. Peace with God gives us peace with ourselves, but it also creates something else. It also creates a new kind of peace with one another, and we see that in the next section. Look with me at verse 24. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let me point something out here. Um, Jesus, now hanging on the cross, while in unspeakable, infinite agony that you and I can't even imagine. Um, You know what he's doing? He's thinking of his mom. Hear that, kids? He's thinking of his mom. It's It's incredible. Jesus, in unspeakable, infinite agony, is is thinking of his mom. His mom is an older widow, and Jesus, being the eldest son, it would have been his responsibility to care for his mom. And he realizes as he is dying um, that he has responsibility with his family. And so he he looks down at her, and he says, Woman, this is your son. And he points to the disciple, and I think that disciple is John. Um, And and then he looks at John, and he says, John, this is your mother. And from that point on, John cares for her. Um. But think for a second about what Jesus does here. Think about what he does here. Um, he entrusts her to the disciple John, but the interesting thing is, is, is Jesus has younger brothers. We know that Jesus has younger brothers. Because it tells us that in John 7. So why would he entrust her to, to John the disciple? Um, something else we know, though, is that Jesus' brothers rejected Jesus. They had rejected the gospel. 
And I, and I think that should tell us a couple of, of, of pretty uh, fascinating things. Um, and by the way, this is Orange Sunday. This is our family worship service. So I think this is pretty timely. Let me point out two things that Jesus says here about our relationships with one another as, as Christians. For one thing, you might be here today and you, and you might be looking around at, at uh, all the families worshiping together and it's, it's sweet and it's fun. And, uh, but maybe, maybe when we do these every, every couple of months, uh, maybe these times are a little bit discouraging for you, a bit disheartening. Um, maybe you're here and, and maybe your kids have grown and they're off in college, and they're um, out of the house, and you really miss these times, and you could be sitting next to your kids, worshiping with them, pouring into them, training up that next generation. Um, and and you, these, these, kind of, these kind of services are a little actually hard for you to watch. Uh, or or maybe, um, maybe you're here, and you, you have yet to, to be married or yet to have children, and this is a, a difficult time for you. As you watch, you, you're, you feel a little bit discouraged, disheartened as you see the families together. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're the only person in your family that actually knows the Lord. Maybe you're the only, family that, that, the only person in your family that's a Christian. I know there are several members of our church here where they're the only Christians in their family. And it's hard to think, I would love it if my family were sitting next to me, worshiping God together. And it breaks your heart, and you pray for your family, and you want them to be here, but they're not. And it's hard, you feel a little bit isolated and alone in your own home. Um, if any of those descriptions describe you, please hear Jesus. Hear this when Jesus says, woman, here is your son, son, here is your mother. It should tell us this. At the foot of the cross, our relationships change. Our, at the foot of the cross, our relationships with one another change. If you're a Christian here, do me a favor and just look around for a moment. Seriously, look around. Christian friends, these are your mothers, these are your fathers, these are your sisters, these are your brothers, these are your sons and your daughters. If you're looking for somebody that the next generation to pour into, look around. These are your sons and daughters. You know, young people, if you are looking for somebody to pour into you and, and, and to give you, you know, sage advice and a walk with you, somebody who's a little bit more seasoned and more experienced, friends, these are your mothers and your fathers. If you're looking for somebody to lean on in life, these are your brothers and these are your sisters. At the foot of the cross, relationships change. At the cross, Jesus comes to bring peace between us and God, but as a result, as a byproduct, there is a new degree of peace and love between you and me. So let's finish up now. Let's see how this is all made possible. Starting in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing now that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus wasn't simply saying he's thirsty. He's not just talking about physical thirst, and I'm pretty confident in this because as of yet, he has yet to complain. He's not complaining. You don't see him complaining about his head and his hands and his feet. Sure, he's making some statements here and there, but, but they're all you know, big theological statements. He's, up until this point, he has not been complaining. And, and Isaiah 53 actually predicted that. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus, up until this point, was not, was not complaining, and I don't think that he's starting here saying, man, I'm really thirsty right now. I think much more is being stated. When Jesus says, I thirst, there's something deeper going on. The, uh, the Bible is filled with metaphorical language. One of the most commonly used metaphors is that of thirst. So when somebody is said to be far from God, the Bible describes them as thirsty. And there's a whole bunch of places that we can go and look at that. I'll just give you one. Jeremiah chapter 2, God says this. You've committed two evils. You've left me, the fountain of living water, 
You've left me the fountain of living water, and you've turned to broken cisterns that can hold no water. You've turned to broken cisterns that can hold no water. The idea here, this whole you know, biblical metaphor of, of, of thirstiness, is that uh, our soul needs the presence of God every bit as much as our body needs water. Our soul needs the presence of God, a relationship with God, just as much as our body needs living water. Our body needs water. Without the presence of God, we die. We fall apart. We disintegrate. And so when Jesus here is saying, I thirst, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm far from God. I'm separated from God. I've been forsaken. The wages of our sin is death. Separation from God for eternity. But Jesus took that death for us. Jesus took that separation for us. He took our thirst for us. This is so important for us to understand. Please stay with me. It's so important for us to understand that the glory and the scandal and the beauty of the cross is not that Jesus took the nails and took the beating and took the crown of thorns. The glory and the scandal of the beauty of the cross is that Jesus thirsts. That's, that's, other people could have been nailed to a cross and other people have been nailed to a cross. We're not here worshiping them. The glory and the scandal and the beauty of the cross is that Jesus thirsts. In fact, if you ask the nails and and the beatings and, and the flogging and all of that, those are flea bites in comparison to the infinite agony that Jesus took on our behalf as he suffered, as he took the the infinite wrath of God for our sins. Flea bites. Jesus descended into hell so you and I can have heaven. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is probably the most powerful and most significant verse in all of the Bible. And that is no exaggeration. When Jesus had received The sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. From all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God starts pointing us to a savior that would one day come and undo the power of sin and heal our broken world. And for centuries after centuries after centuries, prophets have been pointing to this day. And for three years of the public ministry, Jesus has been making his way to the cross. And now it's done. It's finished. You know that that phrase, it's finished, that he says on the cross, it's it's one Greek word. It's tetelestai. You know what tetelestai means? Literally, it, it is, I've done it, and I've done it completely. I've done it, and I've done it completely. Every last bit of it is done. It, it, it actually means totally paid, paid in full. And so if, you, if somebody back in that day had, had a bill that they had to pay, they owed some money, and, and as soon as they paid every last penny of it, they'd stamp it and say, tetelestai, it's paid, the debt is gone. And this is what Jesus cries out on the cross. I did it, he says. I did, I did it and I did it completely. The debt is gone. And on a side note, by the way, if you translate to Telestai in the Hebrew, it's kahal. And that's what the high priest would say when they slaughtered the sacrificial lamb at Passover. It'd cry out kahal. It's done and it's done completely. This is what Jesus says on the cross. To Telestai, it's finished. This is the good news of the gospel. If you're here just checking out what Christianity is all about, it's that one word. That sums up all of Christianity. To Tetelestai, it's finished. There, there is an infinite chasm between God and sinners. 
And what Jesus tells us on the cross when he cries out to Telesai is that he has crossed over not part of it. He hasn't, you know, given us some help. He's crossed over every last inch of that separation. There is an infinite debt that we owe because of our sin to God. Jesus has paid every last penny to Telestai. It's done. It's finished. There is nothing more for us to do. That's the good news of the gospel. And you contrast that with basically every other major religion of, of our world today. You, you, I'll, I'll just give you one. If you take Buddhism, right? You know, you know what Buddha's last words were? Supposedly, we, we, this is what we're told. Strive without ceasing. You know, because you know, Buddhism, like, like basically every other major religion, basically tells you if you want to be saved, you, you have to work really hard for God and to get God to love you and accept you. If you want to be saved, strive without ceasing. You know what Jesus just said? If you want to be saved, cease striving. If you want to be saved, cease striving. Religion will tell you, again, I've heard it said this, religion will tell you, finish the work. Finish the work. Jesus just said, receive the finished work. Religion will tell you, if you finish the work, if you work hard enough, somebody, someday, maybe, God might accept you and love you and bless you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, if you receive the finished work of Jesus Christ from the cross, if you receive the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will get love and you'll get acceptance and blessing today, now, immediately, wholly, completely, and it will never, ever change. Do you believe that? I don't a lot of times. I often don't. I often think that, you know, Jesus kind of, you know, shot me up with some steroids, kind of gave me some help, kind of gave me a boost of something, and then I have to go finish the work. I often forget that he cried out to Telestai and he meant it. Maybe you're like me. And oftentimes when you do something wrong, you make some mistakes, you kind of beat yourself up. But do you understand what Jesus is saying when he cries out to Telestai? When he says, it's finished. He's saying, why are you beating yourself up? I was beaten up for you. Why are you trying to pay for your sin? I already paid for it. Why are you trying to atone for it? I already atoned for it. It's finished to Telestai. And to the degree that you and I will receive that and believe in that and live in that, to the degree that you and I can live under that banner of Telestai, of it is finished, you and I can walk through this life with a sense of poise and a sense of value and a sense of confidence and a sense of acceptance that will be, again, unshakable, unassailable. It will utterly transform our lives and it will transform the lives of those around us. Let me finish just reading the chapter and we're closing with this. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once they came, there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. By the way, do you know that Passover, Passover lambs, um, lambs that were to be sacrificed at Passover, but you couldn't, break, you couldn't break their bones. They could have no bones broken. I thought that was kind of interesting. And uh, verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. 
So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And I close by just simply saying this. Joseph and Nicodemus were a part of the religious councils of that day. Okay? They, they were part of the councils that tried Jesus. And both men apparently kept their mouths shut when Jesus was, was tried and convicted and was crucified. Um, in fact, John actually tells us that all condemned him to death. And so if you take that literally, if it's literal, literal then that, means that, that meant that Nicodemus and Joseph cast their vote against Jesus as well. We're not sure if they did that. We know that they were secret disciples of Jesus, but, but for maybe for some reason they cast their vote against him, probably uh, to protect their reputation, probably to protect their position, probably maybe even to protect their lives. Out of self-preservation, they cast their vote against Jesus. Uh, something happened within those 24 hours from the night that Jesus was convicted to the night that Jesus is now taken off the cross. On, on Thursday night, they cast their vote against Jesus. On Friday night, they go to Pilate and they ask for his body. Uh, and they take down the body of Jesus. And then Joseph uh, lays Jesus in his own tomb. Nicodemus then takes 75 pounds of spices and prepares Jesus' body. 75 pounds, but that's enough for the burial of a king. That's a lot of spices. So, so what happened in, in those 24 hours? Where on, on, on Thursday night, they're, they're, only, they're completely concerned with self-preservation. And they, they convict Jesus and they send him to the cross. And 24 hours later, they are basically putting their, their necks on the line. And, and Joseph is, is putting him in his own tomb. And Nicodemus is, is, is spending a fortune. And by, by the way, and they prepared Jesus' body for burial. That's not something done by men of high standing. In that day, that was something done by servants and, and by women who, who were not respected in the way that they should be in that day. That, yet these men of high standing come and they put their necks on the line and they humble themselves and they serve Jesus. What happened in those 24 hours? The only thing that I can come up with is that they saw the cross. They saw the way in which Jesus died. They, saw, they, they heard the statements that he made. They saw the, the, they saw the way that the very earth responded. You know, when, when Jesus was hanging on that cross, the sun darkened. Yeah, and, and when Jesus cries out, it is finished, the, the very earth shook as its creator died. And we're told that when he cries out, it is finished, and he breathes his last, that the curtain in the temple that separates us from, from the presence of God was torn in half, was torn from top to bottom. It was such a, a scene, in fact, that the Roman centurion who's standing at the foot of the cross looks up and says, what have we done? This is the Son of God. I think Joseph and Nicodemus see this. They see the cross. They see the way in which Jesus died and it utterly transforms these men. Friends, we've, we've, been, on, uh, we've been on a journey to the cross and even just this morning, we've just taken a brief glimpse at the cross. We too, just like Joseph, just like Nicodemus, just like that Roman centurion, we've stood at the foot of the cross and we've watched Jesus die and we've looked at it, listened to his statements and, and we've, we've, we've seen the purity in which the way he's sacrificed himself for us. In the same way that it transformed Joseph and, and, and Nicodemus and the Roman centurion, what is God doing in your heart and mind today? Because the, the cross of Christ compels us. The cross of Christ turns skeptics into believers. The cross of Christ turns cowardice into bravery. The cross of Christ turns the apathetic into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
What's going on in your heart and mind? Maybe the cross of Christ today is going to compel you to a new level, a new dynamic within your faith. Maybe the cross of Christ is compelling you today to to a new commitment to living a life of gratitude, grateful obedience to the one who died for you. Maybe the cross of Christ is compelling you today to new heights of bravery and generosity and humility. Or maybe you're here today, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're just here just doing some investigation, just here to maybe ask some questions. Maybe today is the day when you hear Jesus when he says to tell us die. When he says, it is finished, I've done it, cease striving, stop trusting in your own efforts to be able to gain acceptance to God, to, to, to get God to, to accept you and to love you and to bless you, I've done it. Stop looking to those fig leaves to, to, hide behind, uh, to hide your brokenness, to give you some false sense of peace. Place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Let him clothe you with garments of righteousness. Place your faith in Jesus. And you think, what's faith? I like the way Corey Ten Boom put it. She said, faith is uh, a fantastic adventure in trusting him. You catch that? Faith is, is a fantastic adventure in trusting him. Maybe today's the day. Let's pray.